I really appreciate all those who give of their Saturday mornings to come over here and rehearse that they might uh, accompany the uh, congregational singing and perform special music as a, I don't know, do we call it an orchestra, Ron? Is that what it is? An ensemble. An orchestra, I guess that'd be a little pretentious, wouldn't it? All right, an ensemble. Someday to be a full orchestra, perhaps, huh? Lord willing. But thank you for your hard work and all of that. You know, there are many, many lessons that can be learned from the uh, recent hurricane activity in the Gulf Coast area. Particular, I'm thinking about the uh, Hurricane Katrina, the, the more devastating of the, certainly of the two that have hit that region. And there are lessons to be learned, as I say, I guess for those with eyes to see those lessons. One of them, I think, is a good look at the depravity of the human heart. There is a, a thin layer of civility in this nation, and that, uh, that veneer was burst open, and we got a good glimpse of what lies in the hearts of our fellow countrymen, and it was frightening. Someone said to me, if you want to have an idea of what the tribulation will look like, that was just a small glimpse of the beginnings of what the tribulation will look like when society comes apart at the seams. So there were some very frightening images that came out of that whole process. But there were some positive things. Certainly the common grace of God was on display through the acts of, of just human kindness that we've all heard of and, and read about people helping other people that they didn't know, going, putting themselves out on a limb in order to be able to do that. And so God's common grace was certainly on display amongst that as well, and that we rejoice in. Beyond that, there was the potential that we saw for the church to not only preach the gospel, but to live the gospel. And the churches in the Gulf Coast region have been very active, involved in preaching the gospel and caring for people in need. And so that is a that's a good thing and a good lesson to be drawn from, of, from all of that. Another lesson I think that could be drawn is the, the failure of the false gods of human government to satisfy the needs of their devotees. Those that worship at the idol of government, expecting the government to take care of all of their needs, were sorely disappointed and I... I think that whole myth was ripped open for those, again, with eyes to see. But the one that I want to focus on a little bit this morning as we lead into our look at John 18 is the, the uncertainty and the frailty of life. The fact that life is beyond our ability to control it. The circumstances that come upon us, we do not control most of us like to live with, with an illusion. We like to portray that illusion that somehow we've got it all together and that we are in control of our lives. But as was clearly revealed down there in the Gulf Coast, we don't have control. It is an illusion. No man controls his destiny. No man, that is, except a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago. He lived... And he died and he rose again. 
And as we will see today and next week, he very much controlled his own destiny. Open up, if you haven't already, to John chapter 18. There's a major turn that takes place in the Gospel of John here between chapters 17 and 18. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 are the upper room discourse. We've spent a year looking at the contents of that great section of John's Gospel. Now John turns the corner and he begins to move really rather rapidly to the crucifixion itself. And along the way, there is, there is much that we, can be, that we can glean from what he tells us here. We're going to begin this morning looking at John 18, verses 1 and following. On your handout, it says there are three facts that we can draw from verses 1 through 11 that demonstrate Jesus' total control over his arrest. And that's what we're going to be looking at is the narrative of his arrest his total control over his arrest. And the reason that I want to focus on this is because that we can draw comfort from from the way Jesus handles his own arrest, comfort in our own life circumstances. We are not in control, but he is in control. And there's no more vivid display of his control than there is in this narrative about his arrest. So as we go through this together, the lesson is really very simple. Jesus controlled that and he controls our lives Two, okay? But before we launch in, we need to uh, establish what I guess the, uh, the film writers, producers, directors call the backstory. I want to take a little bit of time with you and sort of fill in the details that lead up to this because it helps to, to um, focus us on exactly what John's communicating. It's been a while since we've been in John's Gospel. So that will be helpful anyway, just to refresh for that. And beyond that, I want to bring in some of what the other gospel writers have to say about what's going on that night in the lead-up to it. And that will, that will put this all in context. So let's establish the backstory here a little bit. Go with me. Uh, now that you've got, you know we're going to be in John, but we'll get there eventually. Go with me to Matthew 26. So let's just sort of start with that. Matthew 26. The, uh, the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, have decided already that they are going to kill Jesus. That decision was made some time ago. It was actually made right after the resurrection of Lazarus that uh, John reports to us in John 11, verse 53. It tells us the decision has been made. Jesus has now assaulted the authorities in the place of their strongest control right on the, on the outskirts of Jerusalem the very bastion of their power, and he has done it in such a way and embarrassed them enough times and with with enough force that they have decided this guy must go and so they're going to kill him. That decision has been made. John 26, for example, verses 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's important to keep in your mind here because when we do get into the the narrative of the trials, the the Jewish trials and the Roman trials, it's important to understand that the outcome of the trial has already been decided. 
It is not a trial to determine guilt or innocence. It is a trial to try to establish some legal means by which they can fulfill the plans they've already decided, which is they're going to kill him. So they're looking for a legal reason to do it. So they've made up their mind they're going to kill him. And they decide together that they need to wait until after the Passover season, verse 5, that they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Jesus is still wildly popular among the, the common people at this time. And they know if they just seize him in a really heavy-handed way and they, and they kill him, which is what they want to do, they're afraid the people are going to riot. And in particular, they're afraid the people will riot during the Passover season when Jerusalem swells with the pilgrims coming in. And in particular, with the pilgrims that come in from Galilee in the north, where Jesus has conducted much of his ministry and his popularity is quite large. So they say, we're going to kill him for sure, but we're not now. The timing is not just right. Wait till the Passover is over. Then we'll kill him. Then enters Judas. Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve, one of the inner core of his disciples, yet never a true follower of Jesus. John 6, just take a peek over there. John 6, verse 70. Some people feel sorry for Judas. They think somehow he got caught up in something beyond him. Don't, don't believe that for a moment. John 6, verses 70, 71. Jesus is uh, responding here to, to the fact that his disciple, many of his wider following is sort of dissipating at this point because he's, he said some hard things to them. He says to the remaining disciples, you're going to leave too. And Peter said, Lord, who else will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus said, didn't I not choose you? Verse 70, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus knew all along that in his midst was a traitor. It did not catch him by surprise in any way, shape, or form. The evil that Judas planned to do, Jesus was fully aware of and worked it into his plan. Worked it into his plan. Why Judas finally decided to, to betray Jesus, we're not really sure. Perhaps, and this is just a, a speculation, but perhaps it's because he was stung by the rebuke that was given to him by Christ when Jesus exposed his hypocrisy. Go with me to Mark 14 and let me just point that out to you. Again, Mark 14, verses 10 and 11 Actually, let's pick it up in verse, um, verse 1. Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread was two days off. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. Now, there is, beginning in verse 3, there is a flashback that goes back to the Saturday night before the triumphal entry. Now... And while he, that is Jesus, was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? Or this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed for me. For the poor you always have with you, and whatever you wish, you can do them good. 
but you do not always have me with you. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. Now, if we were to add to this what John tells us over in John 12, and I think it's worth it, so go ahead, John 12, verse 4. Notice that one of the chief spokesmen, perhaps the chief spokesman, for this scolding of the woman here, verse 4, John 12, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas had no concern about this woman at all. All he cared about was, let's sell the perfume for 300 denarii, put it in the treasure chest, and I'll put it my hand in there, and I'll loot it back out. And Jesus rebuked him publicly in front of the others and no doubt humiliated him, perhaps to the point that it sort of pushed him over the edge and led to his betrayal. Back again, I'm sorry to do this to you, but flipping back to Mark 14. This is good practice anyways for you to go through the Gospels. Verses 10 and 11, right at the end of that narrative there that we just read, verse 10, And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him in an opportune time. Mark gives us the flashback at the beginning of Mark 14 to set up the statements here in verses 10 and 11 that Judas went off looking for a chance to betray him. It's not that they came to him saying, hey, will you betray your master? It's he went to them and saying, how much money will you give me to turn this guy in? And I believe Mark arranges the flashback here at the beginning of chapter 14 to let us know why Judas did this. He was stung by Jesus' public rebuke. And so from that point on, Jesus is, or Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. He's searching for that right moment. Remember, the authority said, not during the Passover. There's too many people. There'll be a riot. Judas comes to him and says, hey, listen, I can figure out a way to deliver him to you right now. This week, you can do what you want to him and you won't have a riot. And so from that point on, Judas is looking for an opportunity to get Christ alone and turn him in. That, by the way, beloved, is why Jesus does not disclose to the whole band of disciples where the uh, Passover meal is going to be eaten, remember? Right? He doesn't tell them where the meal is going to be. He says to, to his inner group, he says, go into the city, you'll see a man with a pitcher of water, right? Follow him, he'll take you to a large room that's furnished, and that's where we'll have it. Why so much secrecy? Why such speaking in codes? I bet he was driving Judas crazy. Judas is trying to figure, okay, I know. They'll be somewhere for the Passover. That's where we'll get him. Oh, no. No, no, no. Judas, you don't know where the Passover is going to be celebrated. Not until you arrive. No time for you, Judas, to spring your trap. Now, during the Passover meal itself, Jesus publicly reveals to Judas that he knows the plot and he knows he's to be uh, betrayed. Matthew 26 Verse 25, 
They're sitting there around the table. And, and Jesus looks right at Judas and he says, in effect, Judas, I know what is going on here. Matthew 26, verse 25. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered. This is when Jesus said, right, one of you will betray me. Surely not I, surely not I. Judas says, and Judas, who was betraying me, answered and said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And he said to him, you have said it yourself. Yes, Judas, it is you. I know what you have done. I know that you have arranged already with the authorities to have me arrested. I know what you're about. In John 13, go ahead and turn there. Jesus offers him one last opportunity to repent. One last time, Jesus looks him in the eyeballs. And by the way, Judas is right next to him. And he looks at him from 18 inches away, eyeball to eyeball. John 13, verse 26. Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. When he reached out to him with the act of fellowship and gave him the morsel and he looked right into his soul. And Judas refused the opportunity to repent. And, of course, we're told immediately that after the morsel, Satan, what? Entered into him. Judas closed himself off from the grace of God at that moment for the final time. And Satan enters into him. Verse 27, Jesus sends him away and says, what you do, do quickly. He sends him off into the night. So now the, the, the scheme is in motion. The plan is in motion. I believe that Judas, during what's normally called the silent day during the week, a Wednesday. We can't seem to account for any activity on Wednesday of the Passion Week. I think it was during the silent Wednesday that all of the arrangements were being made for the arrest and, and uh, eventual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A plan has to be laid in place. I mean, think with me on this. They have to get the Jewish Sanhedrin gathered together in the wee hours of the morning. They have to have Pilate dressed and ready to pronounce sentence upon him. They need a Roman cohort. We'll talk about that, if not this morning, then next week. Ready to do the dirty deed. All in the wee hours of the morning before the city wakes up, the whole plan has to come together. That, beloved, before the days of cell phones and emails, takes a lot of work. A lot of work to plan such a scheme and to get all the parties in place. And so all day Wednesday, I think Judas was busy along with the Jewish authorities laying in their plans for the Messiah. Now Jesus, when he dismisses Judas here in John 13, it's almost, there's of course no clocks, but it's, he's got an internal clock clicking. It's ticking away and he knows that it's going to take so long for Judas to get to the high priest in order to activate the plan. And so Jesus is, in, I think in one sense, he's watching the clock with one eye and in the other, he's giving this amazing teaching in John 14 about how he's going to care for his disciples, how the Spirit is going to come and empower them for ministry that will go way beyond anything they've ever been able to do when he, with, he, with him with them. Then he launches, or at the end of uh, uh, chapter 14... Take a look at verse 31. I think he recognizes the fact that time is almost up for them in, in the upper room. And so at the end, uh, verse 31, it says, Arise, let us go from here. 
And so what I, what I see happening is they just get up from the upper room and they move on down the stairs and out into the city. John 15 is the whole teaching on the vine. And as we say, the, uh, the uh, gates of the temple were adorned with the grapevine. It was part of the symbolism of Israel. And so I think that, that occurred there. Somewhere near the gates of the temple, Jesus gives this big teaching on, in John 15 on the vine. But he's, he's moved from where he was located. Now he's in the city and he, and he gives John 15 and then John 16 and 17, the high priestly prayer. They're moving along one step ahead, always one step ahead. Then we get to John 18, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. He's left the upper room. He's gone to the temple. He's left the temple. He's now left the city. He's just constantly one step ahead. Why? Because it's not time yet. See, it's not time for his arrest to occur yet. It's on his timetable, not on their timetable, that his arrest will come. So he leads his followers out of the city down across the Kidron Valley, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and into this secluded garden. Now, I can just imagine the look on the face of Judas when he arrives at the upper room with the contingent of Roman soldiers, right? Ready to surround the band and arrest them all. And they burst the door open, and in they go, and nobody's there, right? Nobody's there. They're gone. Now, Judas... Where are they? You told us you could deliver him into our hands. We've got the plan and go. And by the way, the, uh, the senior members of the Sanhedrin, they don't exactly like getting up early in the morning, you know? They, they like to sleep in. They're not really uh, 1 o'clock in the morning to dress and, and be there. They're not too keen on that. You better deliver him. You better deliver him. By the way, just as a historical sort of footnote... I believe the upper room was in the house where Mark lived. It was there in the room where Mark lived. I'll tell you the reason I believe that. Uh, back in Mark 14, we have that uh, interesting little vignette given to us in Mark 14. There in the garden in the arrest, there's this, there's this verse 51. A certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him. But he left the sheep behind and escaped naked. Many, many uh, commentators believe that that's Mark himself, the writer of this gospel, inserting that information, a little biographical information. Why would he be there with only a sheep? Well, it makes sense to me. He was sleeping soundly when the soldiers burst the door down and came storming into his house, right, looking for the Nazarene. And so as they leave, he throws a sheet around himself and goes along for a ride so he might see what's going on too. He shows up in the garden wrapped only in a sheet. All right. Back to John 18. That's our backstory. Now we've got the context established. Jesus has taken his band, 
says in verse 1, chapter 18, he had spoken these words. What words? The words that John has recorded for us is what's known as the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17. After Jesus has given this amazing teaching to his disciples, he now leaves the city, as I said, down out of the city, down into the Kidron Valley, about 200 feet down below the, the, the base of the temple court. And then it's to the east, and then back up the slope to the Mount of Olives and into a small enclosed garden. That's where he goes. Now, the, the, uh, the Kidron Ravine or the Kidron Valley, there's a, there's a small stream that runs through it called, the, amazingly enough, the Kidron Stream or Brook. Funny how those things work out, right? And uh, it's, a, it's what's called a wadi. It flows intermittently throughout the year. In the, in the wintertime, when the rains are heavy, it, it rages. And in the summertime, when there's no rain, it's, it's basically dry. All right, so it's the, the, you get the idea of what they're crossing. Now here, it's, around, it's in April. We're not sure. Perhaps some water still trickling through this ravine. William Barclay, in his commentary, adds some color to this. And that was a poor pun, and I didn't intend it. But he says... Uh, in his commentary, and if he's right, it's somewhat amazing. It's clearly true that during the Passover, there were somewhere in the upwards of 200,000 lambs that were slaughtered over a two-day period. That is a historical fact. Beyond that, and some people have asked me this before, they say, Pastor, what do they do with all the blood that would come from all of those lambs when they're slitting their throats and splashing the blood on the base of the altar? Where does it go? Good question. There was actually a channel that ran from under the altar, and they tell us it runs right down into the Kidron Valley, and they would wash the altar, you know, when it would get accumulated along the sacrifices, they would wash it with water, it would run down this channel out into the Kidron stream. So Barclay tells us that as Jesus and his disciples are crossing this stream, and up the slopes of the Mount of Olive, that stream is running crimson red with the blood of the lambs that have been slaughtered for the Passover. If that's true, that is an amazingly vivid picture, right? The Lamb of God, who died to take away the sins of the world, is crossing this brook and looking down at the blood being poured out and reminded of the fact that His blood soon will be spilled for sinners. Now, why a, why a garden and why a garden on the Mount of Olives? Well, the answer is relatively simple. That is, Jerusalem is built on a hill. And there's not a whole lot of room for gardens. Beyond that, it was, uh, according to uh, Jewish ceremonial law, it was prohibited to use manure within city limits on what was considered sacred ground. So for the reason that land was precious and manure was prohibited, many well-to-do families would have private gardens outside the city walls on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And these would be enclosed gardens with walls and locked gates. And they could use them for their own private purposes. So it's not uncommon at all to have these gardens located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus enters one of these gardens, owned, no doubt, by a wealthy benefactor who has given him the key and allowed him to use it as a place of private sanctuary. By the way, we we know that it was a a walled affair by taking a look at verse uh, 1, again, just grammatically, says, into which he himself entered. Do you see that? And then look over at verse 4. The verb, it says, uh, knowing all things, he was coming upon him, he went forth. So, entered and went forth. Give us strong evidence that this was a walled garden in which you entered into and what you would exit from. And so, here is this 
personal garden owned by a wealthy individual where the key is given to Jesus and said, hey, go there, you've got a, a retreat place. Told by Mark that the garden is named what? Gethsemane, that's right, Gethsemane. And it means oil or uh, olive press. Gethsemane means olive press. And so there, in that locked garden where there were olive trees, there was some sort of an olive press. Jesus needed a place to go because he had to get out of the city. And he had to get out of the city every night because he, you know, there's tremendous pressure upon him. And so he needs a sanctuary. He needs a place to go. And so some wealthy benefactor gives him the key to this personal garden and he can go there with his disciples and get away from the press of the multitudes and escape from the authorities until he's ready, until his time has come. So there, verse 1, he enters in with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, present tense verb, by the way, the betrayal is ongoing, Jesus or Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This was a common meeting place. Why did Jesus choose the garden? Did you ever think about that? Why would he go... I mean, he was so careful about choosing the room, the upper room for the Passover, where he would be out of reach of the authorities, concealing its location to the last moment so there's no way that he can be arrested. And then he leaves that place just one step ahead of the law, and he goes to a place that his betrayer knows intimately. Why? Why didn't he go somewhere else? Why didn't he go somewhere where he couldn't be found? Why does he go to the garden? The answer? Now is the time for his arrest. See, he's in control of the place of his arrest. That was our first fact we were drawing from this. He is in absolute control of the place of the arrest. He's not going to be arrested in the upper room inside city limits. He's not going to be arrested in front of the temple gates. He's going to be arrested in a garden at night, outside the city walls, under the cover of darkness when evil manifests itself most vigorously. Jesus is managing every single detail of what's going on here. He will draw them to the garden. Judas knows the place. Jesus often met there with his disciples. Here's Judas. You know, they burst open the doors of the home of the upper room and, and they go inside, swords drawn. They're ready to arrest Jesus and he's not there. And they turn and they look at Judas and they say, all right, where is he? Judas, he's thinking, he's thinking, ah, I know where he went. Come on, follow me. And out of the city, down across the Kidron Valley and up the other side and to the Garden of Gethsemane. See, Jesus wasn't ready to be arrested then. He's ready to be arrested now. He needs a little more time, and so he, he plays this thing out. Plays it out. Jesus was no helpless victim. Not at all. He is the victor. He is in charge of all that's going on. There's not a detail of the circumstances of that night that's outside his control. Well, beloved, we're not victims either. 
We don't control our destiny true enough. We are not in that kind of control. But by faith, becoming united with the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith, what the Apostle Paul calls being in Christ, we now have an advocate who is in control at that level of detail. So therefore, the events of our life are carefully choreographed. The things that come upon us, the Apostle Paul says, Romans 8, 28, work to our good. Why? Because God is a good guesser? No. Because the same level of providential, sovereign control that Jesus demonstrates there in his life is being demonstrated in your life too. A car accident yesterday morning in Upland for a guy who's driven in India. And I've been in India, and let me tell you, it's not a pretty place to drive. But he comes to sleepy Upland and is rear-ended. That is not a random event. And we could go on and on. The, the illness that's come upon you, the tragedy you've suffered, the loss of job, the, the disruptions of your life, all of these things that, that each and every one of us face, they are just part of the great cosmic choreographed plan of your life that Jesus is working out for you. I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort. That gives me comfort. I don't have to fear tomorrow. My Savior's in control. He's in control. Jesus controlled the place. Beyond that, Jesus controlled the procedure of his arrest. Jesus controlled the procedure of his arrest. We're not going to get through this all the way, but we'll, we'll make a stab at this. As I said, I believe it's on Wednesday that the plan has been hatched. The details have been laid. The trap has been set, and now it is being sprung. Verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The other gospel writers say it's a, a large multitude or a very large multitude. John alone is the one who tells us it's a cohort. A cohort. A cohort is a, is a Roman military formation. You see, there were soldiers garrisoned in Jerusalem at the, at the Fortress Antonia, which is northwest of the temple complex. That's where the Roman soldiers were garrisoned in Jerusalem for the preserving of general peace. But there was only a relatively small detachment of soldiers there throughout the year, except for the Jewish festivals, when the pilgrims would pour into the city. Throughout the rest of the year, the, the main Roman army was garrisoned actually 65 miles away in Caesarea. Why? Well, Caesarea is on the coast. It's pretty. It's cooler. It's, it's a better duty than being in hot, dusty Jerusalem surrounded by people who hate your guts and would just as soon stick a knife in your back. So the majority of the Roman troops are garrisoned in Caesarea. There's a small contingent at the Fortress Antonia for maintaining peace. That is until a festival comes. And the greatest festival of all is the Passover. And so as the thousands and, and hundreds of thousands of pilgrims pour into Jerusalem, Rome pours in military troops to maintain peace, to, to quell any kind of nationalistic uprising that might spring out of this holiday in case some hothead zealot begins to remember back to Exodus. Hey, remember when God delivered us from, from Egypt? How about if he delivers us now from Rome and they get a riot going? And so the troops, they pour in to 
keep the peace. John says a cohort. A cohort. Now, on paper, a Roman auxiliary cohort consisted of a thousand soldiers, 240 cavalrymen and 760 infantrymen. But most cohorts were not full strength, so a normal cohort was 600 men. Now, there are some uh, historical statements that there was a such thing as a small cohort that could have 200 men. So, 200 if you like, or 600. John is very specific in the word he chooses. He chooses the word cohort. So there were somewhere between 200 and 600 Roman soldiers in the arresting party. By the way, a leader of a cohort would be called a kiliak or a leader of a thousand, or he could be called a tribune. So there is this Roman cohort. And again, look at verse 3 beyond that. There are officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. That would be part of the temple guard. There are also the, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees themselves, some of them. And, and they've got lanterns and torches and weapons. It's fascinating, by the way, that... Uh, the hatred of Jesus is so intense that natural enemies become allies. Hmm? Pharisees and chief priests, they hated each other. Absolutely hated each other. The only thing they hated more was Christ. So they unified. The uh, Jewish authorities and the Roman soldiers, they hated each other. The only one they hated more was Christ. And so these natural enemies are banded together here to come and to sees him. I think subtly, John, by the way, is just letting us know that the whole world is allied against him. No one takes his side. And they come equipped, look at it again, torches and weapons. This was a Passover. Passover is set by the phases of the moon. A Paschal moon is a full moon. There was a full moon that night. In fact, we know that later. It was not a cloudy night. We know because it was a cold night. Peter's later warming his hands. So we have a big full moon out in a bright, clear night. Yet they arrive with lanterns and torches. Why? Because they expect to have to look for him. They expect him to be hiding somewhere in the shrubbery or, or up a tree or whatever it is. So they bring their lights in in order to find this man. And it's just not a few that come, right? Hundreds of them come. They pour in with all their weapons ready. They're prepared for anything. The last thing in the world they expect is for Jesus to do what he does. And that's rather than they look for him, he looks for them. Pastor Vince and I were talking about this passage this week, and he reminded me of, of a saying that uh, I liked, so I'm using it. And it, what it is is that it's ironic that men took torches to search for the light of the world. Men used torches to search for the light of the world. So up comes this huge contingent, ready for anything. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Against this backdrop of evil, Jesus is 
omnisciently knowledgeable about all that's going on. Rather than hiding, rather than running, he steps out boldly in front of his disciples to the the very center of it and he confronts them. They're approaching him and he turns and he approaches them. Out of the shadows he steps and he presents himself to them. He's no fugitive. He's not afraid. He's not running. He's not hiding for his life. The God-man, creator and sustainer of the universe, steps out to activate the eternal plan of God. Peter tells us, This way in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. When he's preaching at Pentecost later, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now it was time to be arrested. Now was the right hour. No more dodging, no more hiding, no more stealth. Boldly out into the moonlight. Whom do you seek, he says. Whom do you seek? Beloved, they came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus arrested them. Has Jesus arrested you? If Jesus were to say to you, whom do you seek? How would you answer him? Who is the passion of your life? Maybe you're here this morning, first time guest with us. We're so pleased you could be here with us this morning. Maybe you've been coming regularly for some period now and sitting and listening and processing. Whom do you seek? Why are you here? Do you know this one who is in such sovereign control? Do you know the one who, in a matter of a few hours, this narrative will find himself nailed to a Roman cross, pouring out his blood to purchase the redemption of his people? Do you know him? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you will have life in his name? I trust this morning that you will consider this one. We don't have time to go any further here this morning. We'll pick this up. So we will leave it hanging at a question, whom do you seek? Come next week and you'll hear the response. But I want to emphasize to you, if you are here this morning without Jesus Christ, don't leave. Don't leave until you've had opportunity to settle that question in your own heart and mind. There will be some folks who will be over by this 
lighted cross here at the end of the service. They're there for, to help you, to answer any questions you might have with regard to the Savior. Perhaps you have questions on church membership or baptism or other aspects of the Christian faith. You come and you ask your questions and they will find answers for you or give you the answers there. For the rest of us, beloved, as we work through this section together, I want you to be encouraged. As I, My heart has been encouraged this week. As I've studied through this passage, I, I just got so excited this week by the fact that Jesus Christ is absolutely in control. Total control. Of his own life and of mine too. And there's no better place to be than in the palm of the hand of the one who controls it all. Let's pray. Our Father God, thank you for giving us a glimpse of your glory as revealed in the person of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, to show us through your word that he was no victim that he was not somehow a, just a man who got himself on the wrong side of the Roman authorities and ended up crucified for it. But that he is indeed the God-man, second person of the triune Godhead, who came to earth and took upon himself human flesh that he might walk and live among us and then give his life as a sacrifice for our sin. Thank you that he was no victim, but that he is indeed the victor conquering death both for himself and for all who would have him by faith. Our Father, increase our faith as we go into the week before us and the uncertainties that each of us face with our health, employment situations, all the factors of life that come upon us. Our Father, so much uncertainty out there. Lord, give us faith to trust in the one who is in total control. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who died for us. Amen.